2: More specifically, we're talking about the basics of equity comp, some rules of thumb and some common mistakes to avoid as you seek to make the most of your compensation package for employees of public companies and some privately held companies. For that matter, stock options can be a valuable part of your overall compensation package, especially if you work for a company whose stock has great upside potential. However, they can also be tough to navigate if you're not careful. For some, the idea of having to make such a substantial decision around when and whether to exercise an option, as well as if and when to sell, can be quite intimidating. But in order to maximize your compensation plan and make the most of those options, it's important that you understand the plan itself, the choices available to you, and the effects that your decisions around the stock compensation can have on your overall financial situation. When you're awarded stock options, the terms and conditions are described in an agreement, generally referred to as the options agreement or plan summary. The terms of the options agreement include the date of the grant, the number of shares granted, the exercise price, the vesting requirements, the expiration date of the award and details concerning the effect of a change in control or separation of service. The agreement also sets forth any requirements to exercise that option because there are far too many directions to go when discussing equity comp. It's nearly impossible to fit it all into one neatly packaged podcast episode designed to last about the the length of your commute to work. So on today's episode, we're going to cover some of the basics around equity comp as part of a larger series that we'll be bringing to you over the next few episodes designed to help you better understand your options. So to kick us off, I thought it'd be a good idea to call up someone I know who lives in this space and have a conversation about understanding your equity agreement and how it all works together. So Amy Rebeck is head of Charles Schwab's Stock Plan Services. She's also the host of Schwab's Equity Unpacked podcast her team is responsible for plan administration participant education and relationship management among other things and so i thought she'd make a great person to talk to on this subject since she can help shed some light from the institutional perspective and as always in the interest of full disclosure it's important to tell you that my firm custodies our clients assets with charles schwab which for those of you who don't know is basically industry jargon and a fancy way to say that we're franchisees of Charles Schwab's institutional platform, essentially. So with that brief introduction, welcome Amy Reback to the Tech Money Podcast.
3: Thanks, Malcolm, really happy to be here today.
2: So I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro there. What did I miss that I should have gotten on the record here?
3: Well, nothing that you necessarily should have mentioned. I do think that I have a bit of a unique perspective because I lead the stock plan services business at Schwab. I've also been a financial advisor and have advised participants on what they should or shouldn't do with their awards. And I'm super lucky in that I'm also a stock plan participant, so I make those decisions for myself. So happy to share all of that sort of unique perspective wrapped up into one. And aside from that, I really appreciate the warm welcome.
2: The first sort of question on my mind, it's one that I'm sure you probably can answer in your sleep at this point. But you guys in the stock plan (laughs) services group at Schwab like to say that this is where ownership matters. And you sort of alluded to it since you're a plan participant yourself. But why is that? Why is stock ownership important?
3: That is a great question. So I'm going to start by asking you and your listeners a question in return. Have -hmm. you ever rented a car?
2: Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you rent that car and you park it somewhere and you come back out to the parking lot and you notice that it's been scratched up, mm-hmm. but it's a rental and it's temporary. So, in that moment, do you care about the damage to the rental as much as you would if it were your own personal car?
2: Not really, no.
3: Right, right. If you think about that, if you are a renter versus an owner, if you're an owner, you're a lot more invested in the future or long term term status of of that property. And it's the exact same concept with owning the stock of your employer. So if you're an employer and you either buy or you are gifted the stock of your employer, you literally own a piece of that company. And just by human nature, you're driven to play a, a more significant role in its success. And that's why ownership matters.
2: That's a good analogy. I I never thought about it through that context, but that's a really good point. And people tend to beat the mess out of rental cars sometimes. So that really (laughs) does, depending on who you are as a driver and as a borrower, that really does drive home the the imagery that I think you're going for. But sort of counter to that, is there a reason why I might not want to own stock in the company that I work for?
3: There's a couple of scenarios I could contemplate, but they're really rare and easily solved. I think the number one reason would really be just making sure that you have the right balance or diversification across your whole portfolio. So for example, let's say if your employer offers a stock equivalent unit in like your 401k plan or your retirement plan, and you've decided to heavily weight that retirement plan in that investment feature, if you either are either gifted or you go out and you buy employee stock purchase plans, a regular way public shares in a taxable account, that could maybe throw your portfolio out of whack. It might overweight it into that single position and could create more risk you're willing to take. But, Malcolm, if your employer offered you company shares as a grant, which is really a gift, would you turn it down because it throws your portfolio out of you know the allocation it should be in? I mean, I don't know about you, but I would say, hey, thanks very much. I'll take two and I'll yeah. go and rebalance my 401k <laughs> allocation to reduce the risk. So easily solved, not likely to happen.
2: It just strikes me occasionally. I do hear people say I'd rather have the cash. And the reason is not necessarily that they don't believe in the company itself or they don't believe in the shares of the company. It's that it's too complicated. And so it's I'd rather have the cash because then I know what I've got and I don't have to deal with the complexity. That's really the only reason, not that it's necessarily a good reason, but that's really the only reason I've ever heard from people who don't want to own equity.
3: Interesting. And I'd say also really easily solved i'm sure you've given that advice before right
2: yeah over the last few years though have you noticed an uptick in the number of companies wanting to offer some sort of stock plan to their employees to help motivate them
3: we have absolutely and i'd also say it's really interesting that a lot of companies are going to more broad-based plans versus executive Mm -hmm. only one of the reasons that i believe we are seeing that and and the feedback we're getting from companies and also from employees is you're seeing that as part of a demand from the millennial generation. So they are the vast majority of of folks that are in the workplace these days. And it's something that they're really expecting. And that's mainly driven or or really was started by a lot of the big tech companies. They're all right there in Silicon Valley, or for the most part, right there in Silicon Valley, and they're trading people back and forth across the fence. And they have to give them some incentive to make them go from one place to the next. And while not all employers are true big tech companies, per se. They all run their business on technology and have to compete for talent more and more with those big tech firms. So we're in a time where even traditional manufacturers are really competing for the same talent as maybe social media firms or chip manufacturers, and that is Hmm. requiring incentives like offering equity.
2: That's interesting. That's a perspective I never even came at this with before. I want to stay there for a second because, I mean, you've got the perspective of a person who works for one of the largest players in the corporate stock plan space. So I'm curious, you mentioned it's millennial employees who are sort of driving this because I'm, I'm in that camp. I'm actually a millennial myself. And so we're in this group you're saying is wanting to own equity in the company that we're working for, is that a cultural shift you think is going to be longer lasting? Or are you thinking it's just more a function of more millennials going into tech and tech is the space that's like everybody, part of your total comp is equity? I think
3: that the tech space really drove it, but I really okay. see this as just a development of generational progress. So w- the way that I think about it is if you You think about what your parents and maybe your grandparents did. When my grandfather sent my dad out to get his first job, he said, make sure you get yourself a good pension. And then when my dad sent me out to get my first job, he said, hey, make sure you work for a company that gives you a great 401k math. There's been lots of legislation and 401k plans. Retirement plans are pretty standard. So when I send my boys out to their first job, I'm going to say, make sure you find an employer that offers you a great equity plan. And P.S., please work really hard so you can take care of me when I'm old. But all joking <laughs> aside, I think it's just a progression. It's just a natural progression of what becomes standard as employees, employers start to compete more and more for employees and their really high talent that's in demand.
2: Now, that is interesting. I'm going to have to keep my eye out to see like industries outside of tech. Most people work really hard and bend over backwards to try and figure out a way to make themselves a tech company whether they are or not but i'm gonna actually have to start paying more attention to traditional companies that aren't tech companies aren't tech enabled much at all and see if and how they start to offer equity comp because millennials and even gen zers probably are demanding it as part of their package that's a Really interesting perspective. You and your team are in the business of administering stock plans on behalf of employers, right? Can you say a bit about where your job ends, the role of the employer in this equation, and then the responsibility of the employee, who's also the plan participant?
3: As far as responsibilities on the employer versus employee, there's a lot of gray area there, but generally speaking, Mm -hmm like you said at the very top of the podcast, an employer is gonna determine, determine the features of the plan, who the recipients are, when they issue shares, what type of share they, shares they issue. But there's only so far that an employer can go as far as education is concerned. So there are firms that do their own record-keeping and accounting. Mm-hmm. In our case, we are hired at Charles Schwab to do the record-keeping, accounting, and also provide the participant experience. And the big difference here is that We're dealing with security. So there has to be a broker-dealer involved to provide the participants things like the ability to place trades and settlement, pull invested shares from a transfer agent. Those are things that only a broker-dealer can do. So we provide those services there. And then typically, we have more responsibility on the participant side because In order to talk about securities or investments in any details, give advice, you have to have all those appropriate licenses with FINRA and be an employee of a broker-dealer that also is a FINRA member. So that's a whole bunch of industry jargon, but I I just suffice (laughs) to say, an employer can provide their stock plan participants with basic facts about share grants they receive. The things you mentioned earlier, dates, number of shares, vesting dates, other company policies. Anything else that's going to include details on holding versus selling, whether it's a, a rsu or an option accessing their accounts you know investing in themselves education diversification reducing risk that has to be between a broker dealer and the employee does that make sense
2: yeah it does that's precisely what i was hoping you would say (laughs) frankly because i think it's some misconceptions are there between the role of the employer whose job is really just to dish out the equity that they say they will in the agreement they're they're pushing you the shares that they said they would give you when they onboarded you. And then there's the plan administrator whose job is really just to keep adequate records, to help you trade, as you said, to help you accept the options when it's time to and to send the cash if you sell to whatever account you've connected to it to be able to send it. And the rest of that is really the responsibility of the participant. Now, there are some places that go more above and beyond, but for the most part, The employer and the administrator are together providing you with a platform and then employers sometimes provide you education. What they don't provide you is guidance. And that's the part that I think people uh, miss a lot of times is that they're wanting and expecting their employers to give them that guidance, too. And I personally think that some could go a longer way to provide some of that guidance. As you alluded to in the very beginning, you worked in this space as an advisor. So, you know how few people there are actually working as practitioners, financial planners who also will give you advice on your stock and options. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's it's a very big gap, the education gap around this and helping people plan around how to treat those stock certificates. But then that means that you as the participant have to do some of the work of educating yourself because the lack of quality advice exists out there.
3: It's really, really important to have not only good education just on the basics, but then also interaction on what you should do because everybody's situation is different and should you buy? Should you hold? Should you exercise? Should you sell today? Should you sell five years from now? That's going to be different for you, Malcolm, than it is for me. So there's education that's basic, just the facts. And then there's really that one-on-one conversation that that you and, and I as advisors and working with participants and individuals have had day in and day out for many, many years and understand the complexities there of layering in a personal situation. So individual advice is super important
2: so on that same note in traditional financial planning right we take a look at a client's balance sheet and income statement and do some modeling and projecting and try to help them understand how the assets they already have and have accumulated and the income they expect to receive over a given period will fit with their stated financial objectives right that's pretty much financial planning in a nutshell if i can oversimplify for a second how does that equation change when you incorporate equity compensation into the mix?
3: That's the, there's two things. The first one is relatively easy, and I think it's kind of obvious for anybody that's been through any financial planning exercise before. And the, the first thing I'd say is diversification and impact of equity comp. What impact does that have on the overall portfolio al- at allocation? So mm-hmm. when you're looking at a client portfolio or providing advice on what to buy and sell, you start with building your risk profile, right? What are you going to be comfortable with long term? And then you start to build a portfolio that reflects that level of risk. And if an equity grant is injected into that, and it alters that allocation into a higher risk category, Mm -hmm. it's really important to evaluate the pros and cons of reallocating that portfolio to level out the, the new risk that's injected there. And sometimes that might mean exercising some of those awards. And sometimes it might be reallocating other positions. The second thing I would say when you inject equity comp into the mix is that sometimes these are are the wealth events that really put people into, for the first time, they're making these long-term decisions Mm -hmm. and how do I want to invest my money? What can this do for me? I see people make the, you know, I could have this cash. And so they sell right away. And I see a lot of people saying, why did I get this massive tax bill at the end of the year? And I do not give tax advice, but this is the, you know, I've also experienced this myself. The number one mistake that I made was, hey, I could have this cash and pay off my car. And then I had this Mm -hmm. huge tax bill because it put me into another tax bracket. I sold it on a short term basis. It became income, kind of a rich problem to have, but it did put me in a much higher tax category. So what I had thought I was going to pay taxes on ended up being a lot more. So there's unforeseen things that can happen and you just want to try and avoid those things.
2: Two things in there I heard you say that I want to make sure that I like double click on to use a corporate buzzword here. (laughs) One is to actually observe your entire portfolio, including your equity comp, as Mm -hmm. your overall portfolio, not look at the equity comp in a silo and say you know those apple shares those facebook shares whatever it is those are separate and different from the rest of everything i've got going on to make sure that you're actually focused on the overall risk that you're taking on a regular basis but then separately from that having a conversation with an accountant or someone who's extremely proficient in the taxation of equity awards at least once Mm -hmm. when you first get into this scenario to make sure that you understand the tax implications of making that decision to pay off the car this year versus doing it over three years or two years or whatever, right? Like, those are two things I heard you say that I just thought were really important to highlight as we talk through this, because at least in the very beginning, when you start getting paid in, in equity, it changes your entire financial decision, which is why I asked that leading question the way that I did initially. Mm-hmm. But then also the difference between getting paid in RSUs versus getting paid in ISOs, as an example, right? That's a second time Mm -hmm. you want to have that conversation with an accountant to be able to really understand the tax implications of the decisions that you make in any given year to do things like pay off debt or whatever else you decide to use it for. I appreciate you indulging my leading (laughs) questions in that direction, but on a Related but separate note. Right. There's in addition to traditional stock options or restricted stock, as I just mentioned, there's also this plan offered by some employers called the Employee Stock Purchase Plan. Right. The ESPP. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about what that is differently and how it works?
3: Sure. Absolutely. So regular you mentioned RSUs or Mm -hmm. ISOs. Those are typically a grant or an award that's given. And I look at it as a gift. But a lot of firms offer their employees another opportunity to own stock in their companies through an Employee Stock Purchase Plan or ESPP. And participating in that is the choice of the employee, and it does require an investment. so It's not a gift, but it's an opportunity to invest in the company or purchase shares they usually take that money out of the pay- employee's paycheck. So you sign up and then it's a paycheck withdrawal over time and then they purchase lots of the stock over a few times a year and sometimes people say why would you want to do that why wouldn't you just go out and buy it on the open market but a lot of employers offer incentives or kind of unique features that might be a stated discount off the fair mar- market value or even a look-back provision. So, for example, you might have company A that says, hey, our ESPP, when you buy it, it's going to be a flat 25% discount off the market price. Mm -hmm. While company B might say, hey, we're going to offer a two-year look-back When we go to purchase it, we're going to look back two years and purchase it at at the price it was two years ago instead of the current market price. So it's just another way for employees to become owners of that company. And it's a great way to operate, especially if that company only grants equity or stock award to executives.
2: I, I hear that question sometimes where folks say I'm already getting X amount in equity why would I want to also participate in the ESPP? Why would I want to double down in that way? And there's nothing to say that you have to, or you should, or a rule of thumb that says everybody has to participate in it. But what I really wanted to to focus in on, and I appreciate you answering it in that way, is that there's some unique features based on the company that you work for that at least make it worth examining the plan to determine if it's worth it. Because if the company is gonna offer you a chance to look back over the last two years and pick your price, so to speak, that's something you can't get in the broader stock market (laughs) to to be able to like get a do-over or a mulligan from two years ago, right? Exactly. Or if the company is gonna say, which I've seen more frequently outside of the tech space, we're just gonna give you a flat 15% discount on those shares. And that then means that you're buying shares of that company with a fifteen percent profit or a fifteen percent gain, if you were to sell immediately that day, right? Just the yep. way mechanics of the way math works. I'm not encouraging anybody to to do anything necessarily, but just the mechanics of it. If I offer you a fifteen percent discount, you've locked in a fifteen percent gain as your starting point the day that you purchase those shares. Looking at things like that a little bit differently make it worth at least looking into the plan and making an educated decision on whether to participate versus just looking at it and saying, I own enough Apple stock already, or I own enough Microsoft stock already, or what have you. Because there are certain ways that if you're building a plan to to maximize your compensation package, that could include using that ESPP as a vehicle to also help to generate some positive return. But let's turn the ship a little bit and talk about best practices for a moment what are some of the key things that you recommend a plan participant make a habit of doing on a monthly or annual basis or what have you when new shares are granted or existing shares vest even
3: big fan of best practices and there's a you know i I could go down a rabbit hole of best practices for equity comp (laughs) for participants but the number one recommendation that i'll start with is fairly high level because i find most of the time people have not done this and that is to have a plan And by plan, I mean a solid, comprehensive financial plan that really contemplates equity compensation awards and what the vesting schedule is and how much risk that puts you in and what it might do to your income level, your whole portfolio. So like you were mentioning earlier, not looking at it as something that's separate But looking at it as as your overall portfolio and making sure that you're taking in those unique aspects of equity comp. So reviewing that plan at least once a year Mm -hmm. with your financial advisor to make sure you're on track and then provide updates to them on how your personal situation might have changed since that review. Did you get a new award? Without a plan, most participants are at risk of either selling too early. Paying a lot more in taxes like we talked about before or holding on to a position for way too long and Mm -hmm. accidentally taking too much risk or even worse, missing like an options expiration date and losing the value of associated options in the money and nobody wants to see that happen. So
2: yeah, that's, that's like the absolute worst.
3: I know it is the worst. I often hear people say things like financial planning, it's just like, that's not a barrel of laughs, right? But (laughs) I have seen it and I know you've seen it a million times, it brings such tremendous peace of mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you have such better knowledge, you feel so much more confident, you don't feel like you're just floating out there with your financial situation, but it is a tough step to take because sometimes my first financial plan, he said, "You, you just have to stop buying shoes. And I didn't want to stop buying shoes. Like, I love shoes. That's the thing. But so sometimes you have to, you know, get a little reality, but it's no different than anything else in life, right? You go to the doctor and they say, you need to go downstairs and get on that treadmill. It's discipline. It's just discipline.
2: I like to say that oftentimes people think the role of a financial planner is to tell you what not to do and where not to spend money. And (laughs) I think a little bit differently that my role in my client's life is not to tell them no, really, it's to tell them what they're giving up in exchange for the thing they choose to do. Mm. And as long as you're okay with giving, right, exactly. What's the opportunity cost of you buying those shoes? If you're Mm. okay with whatever that trade-off is, then by all means, let's do it. But I really just wanna make sure that you understand (laughs) that by buying these particular shoes at this particular price, at this frequency, You are not allowing yourself to do this other thing that you told me was also important. So when I draft your financial priorities and put them in front of you and say, on a scale of one to 10, these are the 10 things you told me you wanted to do. And number one on that list is I need new shoes every week. These are the other things you told me you wanted to do that are supposed to be equally important, but they're below the shoes. And that's really what Mm -hmm. the the job, the guidance uh, that you get from working with an advisor. In my biased opinion, everybody approaches it differently. On that same note, in reviewing our client's stock option statements and 1099s, I occasionally come across mistakes like tax withholding issues, maybe an incorrectly reported cost basis, or even a missing lot of shares. In an instance like that, for those who manage their own finances and don't work with a financial planner, how do you recommend they resolve these sorts of issues if and when they discover them?
3: Well, two things. So first, any stock plan provider, including Schwab, of course, has a participant services team, and they're dedicated to resolving operational issues, just like you described. So a quick call to Mm -hmm. the service team should put you on the right path. I'd also make sure that people are asking things like, you mentioned incorrectly reported cost basis. What is your provider or the broker dealer actually reporting on cost basis? Because a lot of times people misunderstand that. And Mm -hmm. there are certain situations where you report that, You report the cost basis you determine which lot of shares it might be so if there's really something missing or it is something that that is going to be reported to the irs and there's a problem then of course you just give the, the service team a call and they can correct it for you
2: yeah and there's two specific tax forms that you're to file every year anyway that say here are the corrections that need to be made if any and if not you're just transposing that information directly to it and submitting it to the irs so they do give you a second chance at making sure that the information is accurate and you haven't been double taxed but i won't go down that rabbit hole and unintentionally give you know blanket tax advice on here i'll just say it that way to to look into it but I started off this thing or or somewhere toward the beginning of, of this conversation, I, I mentioned the fact that like the default position of most people who don't fully understand their equity agreement is to do nothing or they don't even want to participate. They just kind of close their eyes, ignore it and let those shares accumulate however they do. That's how you run into situations where people don't either accept the grant or they allow the options to expire completely, uh, which makes some sense on its face, right? if we look at human Mm -hmm. psychology. However, I think it's necessary to make sure that people understand that by not making a decision of whether to sell or exercise or what have you, they're effectively making a decision and one that can have a significant consequence down the road depending on the direction of the share price, whether it goes up or down in the future. Even if that's your plan to ignore the shares, let them accumulate and case I think it's important to just know that that is your plan and the effect of it. But anyway, my, my long winded question here is what other common mistakes or rules of thumb along those lines do you think would be helpful for this audience as we get ready to close out here?
3: Well, three things. So three bits of advice I would provide. The first is invest in yourself and get mm-hmm. familiar with what you own. You don't have to be an expert on this stuff. There's lots and lots of resources. But for example, if you own a restricted stock, the value of that's going to be very different than what you might get from a stock option. And know the difference between those two things. I've known a lot of people that, and, and I see a lot of volume into our, our call center where people say, where did all my money go? What, what happened? I have stock options, and then I exercised them, but I only got a third of what was showing as the total value. Because with a stock option, you get the difference between the grant price and the market price, not the whole value as if you owned the shares. So knowing those details to, to really understand that, take a little bit of time to understand and invest that time in yourself to learn the details. And then know what the plan should be. And then review that plan At least once a year with a professional. Make sure that you're staying on track. Make the most of your awards. This seems really simple, Malcolm, but ensure that your contact information is current, Hmm. especially if your financial planning professional is not an employee of your plan administrator. Financial planning can help you avoid some of those pitfalls or or potholes in the road, especially, as I mentioned before, receiving a significantly larger tax bill than expected. That is such a bummer. And then third, I would say keep track of big, important dates. If you know and you're familiar with what you own, make sure you keep note in your phone or in your calendar somewhere of when your option grants, if you own them, expire. They usually have five or 10-year expiration schedules, but a lot Mm -hmm. of people, like you said, their plan is just to let it sit and forget. And administrators like Schwab, I know we make valiant efforts to notify participants when they have upcoming expiration dates where the options are in the money. But we don't always get their attention. And it is such a heartbreaking conversation when they realize they've missed that expiration date and they're leaving money on the table. And nobody wants to see that happen. But the truth is, that's the participant's responsibility. There's nothing an employer or a plan administrator can do if they miss that. And it's just a terrible conversation. So if you're wondering what their first step should be, log on to the website, pick up the phone. I know for Schwab at Participant Services, we want people to learn. We want to help educate them, ask questions, and be really engaged so they can make the best decisions for their own financial situation.
2: I love it. Couldn't say it any better, so I won't. My final question has absolutely nothing to do with equity compensation. So you can take that and relax your shoulders for a second. But if you never found your way into the wonderful world of equity comp, right, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. What else do you think you might be doing right now?
3: <gasps> oh, gosh, there's so many different things. But <laughs> honestly, if, if money was no, no option, and I, I you can go off and do whatever you want, I would be an archaeologist, I would be oh. out digging in the dirt and finding old stuff and having a great time. That's what
2: I would do. That's a really good one to say if money was never a factor, because you'd be digging for 20 years and never hit anything oh, yeah. and uh, said somehow you still got to eat. So that's a really good, a really yeah. good point. Well, thanks, Amy. This was great. Given our audience, I'm sure somebody listening may want to reach out to you and inquire about Schwab Stock Plan Services. Where can people find you if they want more Amy after this?
3: I would point people towards LinkedIn. And I'll just note that they can connect with me on LinkedIn under Amelia Reback, which is the, it's my given name. And it's the name that all my professional licenses are linked to. It's also the name my mom calls me when I'm in trouble. So I like to go by Amy, but on LinkedIn, it's Amelia Reback.
2: Got it. Okay. Also, and we'll put a, a link to Schwab Stock Plan Services website in the show notes too. So folks know where to find you. Terrific. Eric with an A. Why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? Absolutely. This was fantastic. What a great conversation. Uh, I, I learned a ton of things that I thought I knew that I didn't. So that'll be something Malcolm I discuss later. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Amy, thank you so much for being here. And of course, Malcolm, thank you so much for bringing her on the show. Our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the tech money podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below this way. When Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your
0: colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you
2: a little smarter about your money.
1: This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. If you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcomethridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening.
0: um. you